Super Dave. Tim English, great to hear your voice again. And, you know, there is nobody I miss more than you when it's not basketball season. <laughs> well, even when it's basketball season, it's a, it's a pleasure, Jim. And uh, our friendship has grown over the last couple of years. And it's uh, and, and more than a friendship, there's a, uh, there's kind of an intellectual connection, too, that we share, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Yes, it is. And so this is Jim English, and welcome to the Jim, the Super Dave and Jim Show, and where we talk generally about the NBA, although we pivoted when basketball season is over to World War II. And we're going to talk about World War II and some of the different aspects of it. And Dave, I'd like to start off with, if you don't mind, is you send me an email and you wanted to touch upon the morality of war. Okay? And I have some controversial thoughts about that. And I'd be curious as to your reaction. So... There are, and I looked it up today, there are between a billion and a billion and a half people that died from wars directly or indirectly. That's according to, you know, the scientists and historians, okay? And what do you, where do you think the earth would be right now in terms of overpopulation without war? I couldn't answer that question, Jim, but it's a profound thing. And, and I'm a guy, Jim, that boils things down. I, I, I don't look at the big picture. Uh, when I see war footage from World War II and World War I and anything you see that has to do with this, uh, this human acrimony that's somehow built into our DNA, I think of the individual stories, Jim. I go down to the the poor people in Europe that were uh, that were just uh, collateral damage from the battles between the the politician and uh, and the countries. So uh, it's it's a human tragedy, Jim, but it's part of our living, and uh, it's a it's something that's uh, fascinating to look back on. So uh, I, I really can't answer your question, but I, it's it's a tragedy if it was uh, you know a thousand people. You know, it's just it's horrible to see what happens to humankind when they conflict. So my assertion is, and this is open for debate, and there is no, you know, there is no like morality judgment. This is strictly numbers, okay? And my assertion is that without war, okay, we would have stripped this planet of all natural resources, and we would have been extinct, okay? Because I think that, you know, so much of the dollar or currency at the time has gone into war. Now, if that would have gone into, say, you know, if there was no war and it had gone into, like, medicine and metal, you know, just to elongate the lives of individuals, okay, those million, first of all, there's 7.3 billion people on the planet. If you added another billion that died from war, plus their descendants, plus the exponential growth associated with a billion people, and, you know, the, the natural thing to say is that people would get wiped out by disease. But my assertion is that we'd have more money to spend on disease if we didn't have defense budget and war wasn't in our DNA. And it would elongate the life. And therefore, we would have stripped our planet a long time ago of natural resources had there not been war and war being part of the DNA of humans. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, one of the things when you talk about the population of the earth uh, at 7.3 billion, uh, in my lifetime, Jim, I was born in the 40s. Uh, 
and I knew in the late 50s, early 60s, somehow I knew this number. Uh, we had three and a half billion people on the planet. In my lifetime, Jim, we've doubled the population of the planet Earth, doubled it in just my little lifetime here. So uh, it, it is a, a speculative uh, question and answer. And I think that uh, you're almost putting a positive spin on it, Jim. You know, and we, you I, know I, it's, you know, the scourge of humanity is war. Without that scourge of humanity, I don't believe that that humans would still exist on that planet, on our planet, because of overpopulation and the consumption of natural resources that would be associated with having that many people, you know, still alive and procreating. It's not only once again, it's not only the billion people that have died in war directly or indirectly over the over the millennia, but it is also, you know, their procreation, their kids having two kids and their kids having two kids and their kids having two kids and so on. You know, I mean, I, I know it's not very popular and I know it's not a very nice thing to say. But I do believe, and my assertion is that without war, we would not exist. So the scourge of humanity, which is war, is also the blessing of humanity. Oh, what a break we've had. I never thought of it that way, Jim. I've never thought of how great these wars have been. <laughs> you know, but when you talk about morality, Jim, I have a, a poem, and I'm not reading this. I've memorized this. I've known it for years. And let me... Let me give you this 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 profound uh, quote uh, is from Grantland Rice. It says, "Wars are planned by old men in council rooms apart, who plan for greater armament and map the battle charts, but where their sightless eyes stare out at life's vanquished joys, I've noticed nearly all the dead were merely more than boys." Yeah. I, I when I read that poem or quote uh, in my youth, I thought, "Wow, that that summarizes what war is about." And and I went through the Vietnam period, Jim, and uh, thanks to basketball, I I didn't have to go because I tore up my knees so bad. They were taking women and children before me, uh, and uh, it, it was just. Uh, something that I saw on TV every night, uh, this this battle, and thinking about myself over them and those Vietnamese going, you know, sighting them up across the, the plane and saying, let's get the big guy. Yeah, yeah I, I know it's, I, I know it's like a weird thing to say, to think of, you know, the worst thing that can happen to humanity is going to war and it's really weird to think that is the savior of our species what a break <laughs> what a break never, <laughs> you've really put a, a great perspective on it jim but i know <laughs> it's, it was a, it's a reality it's a grim reality that we live with but uh this uh, august of 2023 that we're in now uh it's it's pretty profound month to uh, look back on history because uh you know two the first two atom bombs were dropped on populations in the in the month of august uh, uh back then and that's when uh the, the war finally ended in, in world war ii so uh it's a pretty uh unique uh, period here that we're 78 years removed from one of the uh worst the, the worst war in terms of casualties uh, on the planet you know, it's interesting you say that about the, you know, and, and, you know, we have the Oppenheimer movie out. I haven't seen it. I oh, yeah, that's the other, that's the other thing about, yeah, the Oppenheimer movie is out it's, it's excellent. And you know what is a blessing for history? Okay. Because the atom bomb made Harry S. Truman the most powerful man in the history of this world. Okay, 
He had the atom bomb and nobody else did. Okay. So, I mean, he was more powerful than, I mean, he had the capacity to, they, I, you know, when he had the bomb during the, you know, the night, the um, 1945, 46, 47, before anybody else got it. Okay. He right. had the capacity to wipe out any nation on earth and there was nothing anybody can do about it. Now, what was lucky in history is that it was Harry S. Truman. I mean, suppose it had been Hitler, okay? Or suppose it had been Henry VIII, or suppose it had been Andrew Jackson, you know, or some of the, or George Custer, you know, what would, it was just so ironic that the man who shunned away from power, which is Harry Truman, because his political career, he was a tailor. And they asked him to run for governor. And so he ran for governor. And then FDR had a pissing contest between all of his VPs, you know, candidates. So he picked Harry S. Truman. Harry S. Truman never wanted to be in power. And the irony of this, Adam Baum, the fact that he, without question, was the most powerful man in the history of the world, but he was a shy man and he didn't, he didn't seek power. If you would have, you know, if, if, if that person could have been hundreds or thousands of people who would be willing to wield that power, like Teddy Roosevelt, you know, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt had that kind. I love Teddy Roosevelt. But if he had Super Dave, that kind of power, he would have wielded it. He would have. But the most powerful man ever in the history of the world, Super Dave, shunned power and he didn't exploit the leverage he had. Yeah. What if it was the... Uh, uh possessed by Dirty Harry. <laughs> that could have been a disaster too. Well, the, yeah. the fascination I have, and, and you're, it's, it's great to bring up Harry S. Truman uh, because the decision he had to make was well thought out. But now we've got something, Jim, which I'm sure uh, you, you'd love to go back to school for, revisionist hist history. Oh, yeah. That's what we're doing here. So... For all this, the, the time I can remember, the, the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki three days later ostensibly ended the war. But now they're telling me, oh, no, 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 uh, that did not end. It, Japan was ready to uh, 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 capitulate, you know, when the uh, Russians declared war and attacked uh, Manchuria on the day they dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, and they would have uh, uh, they would have surrendered unconditionally. Anyway, that is not true. And what Harry Truman did was not only did he uh, instruct flyers to be dropped all over Japan and the residential areas, telling them the destruction that was coming. He told the the powers that be in Japan the same thing, and still he he was. He was torn between whether to, to, to go ahead and use it or not. A horrible decision, Jim, but you're right. Uh, the right man for the right time in history. Yeah, I mean, that was, if you think about that, that was the biggest decision in the history of the world. You know, I mean, it launched us, it, you know, it launched us into the nuclear age. And being the American president defending American rights. I mean, one thing that caught Harry S. Truman's eye were the kamikazes, okay? Because, you know, the kamikazes, for those who aren't aware of them, what they did is these, the, when it was obvious the war was lost and the aircraft carriers and the battleships are heading towards Japan, the flyers filled their, the, the pilots filled their jets with dynamite, they were just a flying bomb and they, they went, you know, they sank a bunch of ships, including the Indianapolis. 
And Harry S. Truman looked at this type of commitment and this type of samurai mentality. And he said, if we invaded the island, they're just going to fight till their death. So he made the decision to drop the atom bomb, Super Dave, you know, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's an excellent point, Jim. And that's something that you, you just cannot underestimate because the, and what, and what Harry Truman and the, and the government uh, of the United States knew about uh, the Japanese was what they heard from the, uh, the battle people uh, in the, uh, uh, the Pacific Ocean in the, uh, the, the Battle of Iwo Jima and Okinawa uh, proved that uh, just a small force of them uh, would not give up, even though they were outnumbered, outgunned and everything. They showed an attitude that they were not going to quit. And if you talk about the mainland of Japan, uh, that was uh, that was going to be, uh, you know, even more fierce. And that's what the uh, all the the uh, tech. What do you call it? The uh, uh, the the information that Truman had from his military people and all the all the people that have been in the you know at the front line said they are they are not going to give up in fact some of the bombings jim prior to the atom bombs killed as many people uh, over a, just a little more of a period of the the uh, the bombing they did on Japan and and they actually hit Tokyo was was greater than the losses of uh, it was uh, of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So they wanted to prevent and they save lives because they knew an invasion of Japan would have been disastrous, not only for Japan, but we would have lost hundreds of thousands of our American troops. And Harry Truman didn't want that. And then there's the, the, the situation with Russia. Remember, Jim, Russia was, was neutral. They were not, you know... Uh, going to fight Japan, although Stalin, uh, just prior to the drop in the bombs, had, had planned for uh, an August 15th uh, invasion of Manchuria for the first time to sort of take sides and to try to uh, help out with the, the, the Japanese. So there, there was a lot at stake and a lot of decision-making that, that really ultimately, and these people that, uh, that, that are trying to revise history, you can hear from the uh, attitude of the Japanese, the, the, the people that were uh, interviewed post-war, and some of the things we found out prior to that, the kamikazes that you identified, Jim, were just the tip of the iceberg. They were not going to surrender. That's correct. I mean, they, you know, they would have had, we would have lost maybe a half million men invading that country. And the use of the atom bombing, you know, this is, once again, you know, history is filled with irony. Is Harry S. Truman, who was without question the most powerful man in the history of the world at one time, and also who made the most, one of the most critical decisions in the history of the world, was not an elected official. But he was never elected president. He just inherited when FDR passed away. And, you know, in in my opinion, you know, with he made the right decision because, you know, we were tired of war. And, and you're absolutely correct that, you know, Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, Bataan, the Philippines, Singapore, you know, all these places that the Japanese had conquered and we had to reconquer it, Guam, Okinawa, these people did not surrender. And that samurai mentality, Super Dave, is one of the reasons that the Japanese treated American and other POWs so terribly, so brutally, so ruthlessly, because they didn't respect them because the Japanese would rather die than getting captured, Super Dave. Exactly. And that mentality is so different culturally and we had to understand that. We had to understand the nature of our enemy at that time. And you're right. They absolutely, uh, it was a matter of pride for them. And it took the, the realization and, and the fact that uh, the, uh, the emperor, and there was a, there was a very close 
there, there was like a, a, a some sort of a ministry of like six people. Three voted to surrender, and and three didn't. Uh, you know, uh, wanted to continue the fight. Uh, but Hirohito finally decided, no, we're gonna. We got. We we can't let the the population because uh, they they were expecting the the next atom bomb to fall on Tokyo, Jim. So it took that kind of decision by Truman, that kind of technology that was uh, uh the like you said the the scourge of mankind, but uh, it it ultimately saved lives and people just can't understand that and the and the ideology that's going around the country these days is trying to. To, to turn the pages and, and rip out pages of history that you and I know, uh, you know, what the truth is. Yeah, Harry S. Truman you know, had one, probably two objectives in mind, is number one, win the war, and number two, save American lives. You know, I mean, that has got to be his priority as president. I mean, he can't think any more globally than that. And I would really, you know, anybody who questions his decision uh, should, you know, is wrong. Is I mean, they're wrong. I mean, if we would have invaded Japan, you know, and tried, we may have to kill everybody in that whole damn place, you know, before they surrendered. And that would have cost, you know, millions of Japanese and hundreds of thousands of Americans. I mean, think about it. So the Japanese mentality during World War II, there were people on isolated islands like Guam, right? Who these were, these were men that were part of the Japanese, the Empire of Japan's army or navy, and they hid in the jungles for decades, you know, up until like 75, 1980, these people refused to surrender. They refused to give up. I mean, that's the mentality that Truman and the Americans were dealing with, with an invasion of Japan, Super Dave. Oh, yeah. Well, right after Pearl Harbor, their next target was Guam. They took over Guam. And what happened, I happened to my son, uh, the, the airline pilot lives in Guam because it's the United Airlines hub. And I've been there and look at the history of Guam. When the Japanese left Guam after we were taking over all the, uh, the islands out there in the Pacific to, uh, to get as close to Japan as we could uh, to, to drop those bombs, uh, th- what they did, Jim, as they were leaving, they absolutely executed the population of Guam. They killed all the people as they were leaving uh, Guam to, to evacuate. Uh, that's the kind of brutality they had. And they were going to leave nothing behind. Uh, and you're right. They, there, there was a, a, there was a, a general or some kind uh, for the Japanese army that was found, uh, you know, hiding in, uh, in Guam, you know, uh, decades afterwards. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the Japanese fighting men refused to surrender. I mean, they did, and they disdained anybody low, anybody who was cowardly enough to be caught alive. I mean, once again, that's why you see, you know, the, the movie Unbroken is about an Olympic runner who got caught and ended up in a Japanese um concentration camp and they tortured him and did all these terrible things to him. But that's why they did it because of their mentality that, you know, these are, you know, these men evolved, this, the Japanese army evolved from the samurai. Okay. And the samurai were fighting men that never gave up. They never gave quarter. They were merciless and that's the evolution. That's the beginning of the Japanese, you know, of the Japanese men. And also, too, the Japanese soldiers also, too, is, you know, during the and I'm about to release a podcast, Super Dave, on on it's it's in three parts. It's about Commodore Perry 
1854, forcing the Japanese to open their gates to us. They were isolationists. Um, and, and then it's about the Doolittle Raid, and then it's about the retribution that the Chinese had on the, uh, I'm sorry, the Japanese had on the Chinese after they helped Doolittle. It was, it was really, really brutal. But, you know, the Japanese were ruthless. They gave no quarter and they asked no quarter. And the world had been treating the Japanese, especially the United States, like second-class citizens for almost 100 years before Pearl Harbor. And they were embarrassed, they were insulted, and they were pissed. And one thing, a precursor to World War II, which should have demonstrated to the world about the Japanese fighting man, they were cruel, they were ruthless, but boy, I respect the, you know, their commitment to duty and the, kama, the kamikaze sort of mentality is in, in 1904 and 1905, you know, Russia and Japan went to war and the whole world watched stunned that the Japanese, that the Japanese could not only go toe to toe with the Russians, but they beat them in the Sino-Japanese War. So they were developing a army, a war machine, you know, in, you know, since 1900, Super Dave. Well, yeah, going back to that uh, source of, in history, uh, and, and a lot of the, especially the young people today, Jim, don't, don't see the context. Most people are wondering why, why would Japan attack Pearl Harbor and the United States uh, the, the reason was, Jim, because uh, you, you forget that Japan is an island. It's an island off the coast of the mainland of Asia. And it doesn't have the resources that China and the other people uh, places have. So what the Japanese wanted to do, going back to those uh, uh, decades of history that you're going to explore, what they, what they thought about is they need to, to take over the Philippines and the Asian peninsula. But in order to do that, the United States presence there in the in the Philippines and the Mariana Islands, uh, that was the threat to them. And they thought if they could catch the United States off guard, which they did at Pearl Harbor, but they miscalculated a lot of things, that they thought that that was going to be uh, their ticket to take over Asia because that was their real master plan. And uh, the, the the ongoing battles with China. Uh, only just heightened the fact that they needed to have more resources in order to to be uh, the the kind of empire that they they dreamed of. So that's where all that mentality and that warrior, that samurai warrior mentality, gave them the confidence that they that they could prevail even uh, with uh, you know lack of numbers and uh, resources and the military uh, that they were going to be fighting because. They felt that they had a, a stronger uh, fortitude uh, with the military mentality that they bred into their population. But uh, once again, there was so many miscalculations and it, it cost Japan dearly in the end, Jim. It did. It did. In our last, in our last uh, podcast, you pointed out that, you know, Pearl Harbor was devastating, but it wasn't a knockout punch because they left us oil. And they didn't get our carriers. Oils and the aircraft carriers. That 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 was their mistake. Yeah, I mean they, you know they they could have had the knockout punch, but you know it was, you know it was, you know what's interesting too about the Japanese mentality is they felt up until the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or maybe maybe the maybe it happened before that with the Doolittle raid. When in retaliation for Pearl Harbor, Jimmy Doolittle and his raiders dropped bombs on on Japan in April of 1942, but Japan thought they were invincible. So Japan had never, ever been invaded in all of their 2,000 or 2,500 years of written history. Now, they fought between themselves 
within the island, intra-island conflicts, but nobody had ever invaded, nobody had ever invaded or set foot on, on Japan in, you know, in terms of an invasion. You know, obviously there was trade, the missionaries tried to do that stuff, but Japan felt invulnerable, okay? Nobody had invaded them in all of their history, Super Dave. No, they haven't. And that, but they still had an expansionist mentality uh, that they, you know, and that was probably built out of their confidence that the, they were invincible in terms of uh, their defensive uh, position, but they, they got aggressive. Uh, and, and when you explore those eras of the 1800s and 1700s, uh, there are roots that you can trace back to what was going on with their leadership. And whenever you have em uh, empires ruled by emperors and uh, dictators and, and that sort of government, you have an ego that is dangerous. I mean, that's, that's what uh, Hitler represented in Germany. Uh, and you need to have checks and balances. One of the brilliance of the American Constitution is how our founding fathers built in these, these very uh, premeditated checks and balances just to prevent that sort of warmonger mentality and expansionist and, and the wars that, you know, you've identified at the beginning of this podcast that, that really just uh, was a, depleted the earth of, of much of its population because the fighting has gone on since the beginning of mankind, Jim. Yeah, it has. And, you know, with uh, as far as Hitler goes, you know, it is it is a phenomenal, you know, and this is kind of this is going to be unpopular, too. But Hitler was one of the best orators of all time. OK, he galvanized a nation and turned them really into in his Luftwaffe, his industry his his navy his u-boats his army into an instrument of evil and he convinced i mean this isn't like we're not talking you know we're not talking about a thousand years ago or 500 years ago right we're we're not even talking a hundred years ago we're talking 80 years ago this man had the ordal capabilities to convince a nation to become totally evil. I mean, that to me is amazing. It's amazing that he could do that, Super Dave. Well, it was a place in time, Jim, where that situation was ripe for that kind of a, of, of an evil dictator because the, uh, Discrimination against Jews goes back hundreds of years, but what what happened in, in when uh, Hitler was in jail when he read, uh, wrote Mein Kampf, he was able to articulate that prejudice that he tapped into because the depression of the 30s affected the world and his Nazi party was going to be a savior and his oratory skills harnessed that sort of easy kind of uh, bias and prejudice that was uh, pervasive throughout Europe. And he, he galvanized it into, once again, the ego of a dictator and the, the pride. He, he, he capitalized on World War I, what happened to Germany uh, and the treaties afterwards. They felt that they were mistreated and they were unduly uh, held back uh, from their, their autonomy. And he tapped into that, the prejudice, the depression, uh, the, the economy of the time. And it was all a perfect storm, Jim. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, and now we've flipped the kind of the, the history books to the, uh, to the residual effects uh, of the war when we, we started with the roots, is the fact that I think that in this current climate, I, I grew up, Jim, in the Cold War and I don't think young people today even know what the Cold War, Cold War is or was. Do, do you think, Jim? 
I think that they have, you know, if they're if they're well educated in history, or if they have any in, um, any interest in history, uh, I think they would know about the Cold War. But Super Dave, there is nothing like living through it, like you and I did, that can convey, you know, the what was at stake here. I mean, so the United States. And Britain and Russia divided up Germany during World War II, okay? And basically, Russia started taking over all of Eastern Europe and forcing it into communism. This is just, I know you know this, Dave. I'm just kind of giving a, a little quick little background for you know the 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 younger people or the people who don't know what what happened in the Cold War, and they all became communists, and then Western Europe became became capitalist, and the nose to nose was in a spot called the Berlin Wall, where it separated East Germany from West Germany, capitalism from communism, you know, totalitarianism from democracy. And, you know, and also, too, is the amount of nuclear weapons, this was in the 50s and 60s, were enough back then to devastate the planet. And you have two differing ideologies, two different personalities in the leadership. I mean, they're nose to nose, Super Dave. One trick, one, one itchy trigger finger. Okay, the world goes up in an atomic cinder. I mean, it was that close. Well, going back to the uh, what we talked about at the beginning of our podcast, Jim, uh, with Oppenheimer, the development of the bomb, and the situation that we that we're talking about now with the with the Cold War and and the and the Russian threat that is, we knew that's what Stalin had done. We. We, he was only an ally of ours out of necessity. But by Truman using the bomb and us developing the bomb before Russia, it sent not only a, 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 a signal, a message to Japan and ultimately ended the war, it also sent a message to Russia that we are not to be messed with. We had the bomb, and that was why... After the after the war, and going back again to, and you're so profound, Jim. You hit all the high points before I even get to them. The fact that you and I lived through this, uh, yes, you, you could tell young people, and they could read something about uh, the Cold War and the aftermath of World War II. But unless you lived through it, I, I was uh, uh, my parochial, my grade one through eight. I was in a Catholic school, and I was taught by almost uh, 100% nuns. Okay, and in the mid '50s, one of the nuns, Jim, uh, caught me reading a magazine. It was Mad Magazine. Okay, and this nun, who was very politically oriented, she actually told my parents that she thought I was a communist because I read Mad Magazine. <laughs> Can you imagine that, Jim? That that is the mentality I grew up in. I had a project. In the seventh, sixth or seventh grade, where I had to do a, a report on Sputnik because it was the first uh, satellite in outer space and it was by Russia. And that's how we preoccupied we were in the schools and the government to beat Russia uh, to the moon and to uh, you know have a better offense and defense uh, nuclear-wise uh, against the Russians. So that all goes back to... Uh, what happened in World War II, and it carries on today, Jim. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, so the, there was a real threat, okay, a real threat that the world could have been devastated by nuclear war. This is October. Yeah, it, Yes, and you know, it kind of culminated. It you know, it kind of culminated in the in the, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but there was a. I read this. Uh, I was doing research for a different podcast. It's called James Bond 
and how James Bond affected the CIA. Uh, but part of the 1950s was called the golden age of paranoia. And part of that golden age of paranoia was because of the Cold War and what seemed like a definite possibility for nuclear war. And what fanned the flames of the golden age of paranoia was Hollywood jumped all over it. You know, they're like all these nuclear, you know, these, you know, the, the Godzilla came was a result of nuclear testing, you know, a big monster that's going to destroy Tokyo. And then there was, you know, all these movies about like apocalyptic movies, B movies about the nuclear wars. And that really created a paranoia in the 1950s, Super Dave. And you and I lived through that. Oh, and we yeah. could feel it. It was culpable. I mean, you could feel it. Oh, yeah. Uh, McCarthy and the, and the hunt for communists was, you know, was, uh, you know, actually had the blacklist in Hollywood. And like I said, I was, I was labeled a communist because of the magazine I read. And it, it was something that was part of your everyday life. We would have at 10 o'clock on Fridays, and, and, and we would have to, uh, there, you could hear a siren all throughout our city. And we got under our desk at school, <laughs> Jim, I swear, we got under our to, to practice getting protected by getting uh, attacked by bombs. And that was all part of the Cold War hysteria. Yes, it was, it was, it was a feeling of paranoia that was pervasive throughout the United States. I mean, I remember during the Cuban Missile Crisis, my grandmother comes up to me and she was, you know, a little old lady and sweet as hell. And she comes up to me, she goes, Jimmy, are you ready for the end of the world? And I mean, that was, I mean, that was typical of the perspective of the Cold War. Everybody was so concerned, Super Day. I mean, just think about that. The whole city is going under, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10 o'clock on Friday under their desks. I mean, you, you just can't write that. I mean, and that, once again, when you read about history and, and young people hear about that, that those kind of things don't, don't rise to the surface. You can't, re you can't imagine what it was like. And the fact that there's so much nuclear weapons on uh, the planet now, they're trying to disassemble them and having the anti-nuclear you know, treaties and everything because, you know, it got so bad that they, you know, finally Russia got the bomb and they, they, they outdid the, the, the Nagasaki uh, neutron bomb. And, and, you know, then uh, the UK got a bomb and, and now we're worried about places like Iran and stuff because we've already seen what a, what one maniac like Hitler can do uh, back in the 30s. Well, imagine in the nuclear age what dirty bombs can do uh, if in the wrong hands. So that paranoia is dissipating now, and it's got a, it's a double-edged sword, Jim. It's it's not as real of a threat as when we were growing up. But it's still a threat nonetheless. That's why our airports are, are so high security that the, it's a different world, but it's all kind of has roots back to it when we were growing up, Jim. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned Joe McCarthy, okay? And Joe McCarthy, for those that, that, uh, that don't know, and by the way, I understand he's featured or a Joe McCarthy-like figure is featured he was a senator and he conducted hearings in congress about the communists and the worst thing you can do in the 50s was call somebody a communist and when you were called a communist it wrecked your career okay it wrecked your life it did you know so many hollywood people lost their career because they were called communists. I mean, 
I have to tell you that in the 50s and early 60s, being called a communist is equivalent to being called a pedophile today. I mean, it is about the worst thing that you could have been called in the 50s or 60s. And Joe McCarthy and his henchmen made you think like there were communists under your bed. I mean, their communists were everywhere, and they're gonna they're going to take down the United States from within, Super Dave. No, that is exactly what was happening, and they would have these hearings, Jim, and they would ask you, "Have you been, or have you ever been associated with a communist party?" And what what was difficult for people that were called to the stand was they might have had some association, and if they said that. Uh, it would sound like they're communists. If they didn't say that, they would get uh, you know arrested for perjury, uh, you know, for whatever they found out. So, uh, it, and and then there was people in Hall, especially in Hollywood, was a uh, was where it really prevailed. Uh, they would have uh, people that would identify other people that they suspected to be communists. Well, that was good enough. You only had to be suspected, Jim. You, there was no trial. That, that deemed you a communist. If you were suspected of being a communist, somebody said uh, Jim English is a communist, then you were on the blacklist and you couldn't work in Hollywood anymore. And those that, that somehow snuck under the, the railing and got, they had to use a, a different name. They went under assumed names. And so that's, that's the, uh, the, the what, what, what happened to the, 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 the whole situation was, was, you know, it was just guilty by association. Yeah, it was. You know, it's interesting. One of my favorite movies, and it's a stable for boomers. I don't know if uh, how much the millennials know about this or the younger folks. Is a movie called On the Waterfront, okay, with Marlon Brando and Eva St. Marie and... and Rod Steiger. See, Rod Steiger and Carl Malden and Lee J. Cobb. And by the way, it was best picture, best director. It was best everything. Marlon Brando won his, his uh, first Academy Award. And a trivia question is there were three actors that were all nominated for best supporting actor from one movie that's never happened before. But Elia Kazan directed and wrote the movie, and it's a parable about what he did with the with the the communist interviews and investigation by Congress, because he quote unquote ratted some of his people out. So if you've ever seen the movie, the hero of the movie is Marlon Brando, and he rats out the mob to the you know to a to a grand jury and bring <laughs> down the 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 chieftain of the mob the head guy's Lee J Cobb but it's a parable that he wrote because he was rationalizing why he did why he named names to Joe McCarthy one of my favorite movies and the irony of Lee J Cobb's character <laughs> Jim was Jimmy Friendly, <laughs> hardly. <laughs> what a what a classic movie! Yeah, Eli Kazan was in the eye of the storm there. Yes, he was, and he, you know, what he wanted to do is he wanted to rationalize why he did what he did. So he made this movie to do that, and it turned out to be a huge Hollywood hit, which surprises me because you know it's the Hollywood people that vote on the Academy Awards, and they elected him in. But, you know, I mean, they elected him as best director, best picture, best, you know, they swept the Academy Awards. Well, hypocrisy and runs amok in Hollywood, Jim. It does indeed, Super Dave. It does indeed. Well, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here. And as the people know that listen to the Super Dave and Jim show, we do not have an agenda. This is free-formed discussions on it. We just all we knew is we were going to talk about war, Super Dave. 
So is there anything else you would like to talk about? Because we hit on, number one, the morality of war. And, you know, for me, it's not as clear cut as it's the scourge of humanity. Because I do believe without war, we would have been overpopulated a long time ago. And then we talked about the nuclear bomb and the decision Harry S. Truman had to make and then the Cold War. Is there any way, anything else you'd like to discuss? Yes, I would like to end with, uh, we talked about the movie Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project uh, was, you know, the great decision that Harry Truman made, as you identify it, the, the most powerful and, and noteworthy decision in the history of mankind could not have been possible if the United States and FDR, who was approached by Einstein, uh, a friend of Einstein said, you, you need to tell the president. And Einstein wasn't going to go to President Roosevelt, but he had to go to him. Uh, finally, he was convinced that uh, rather than have Hitler get the bomb and explain that, that what they could do uh, with uranium and uh, nuclear fission and that they should uh, get the technology before uh, the Germans do. And that's kicked it off. And Oppenheimer was one of the, the great scientists. But the irony, Jim, is many of the scientists actually came from Germany because anybody that was Jewish, of course, was getting out of Germany. And then some of the people that were, you know, understanding the, the danger of uh, Hitler and the Germans, no matter what affiliation they were. And so they collected the most remarkable array of scientists that's ever been done. And they created uh, at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, uh, a town, Jim, a town of 75,000 people in Tennessee for two years to help. That's where they uh, enriched the uranium. And then in Los Alamos, Alamos uh, New Mexico is where uh, Oppenheimer and his crew devised the bomb. And there was things in the state of Washington that are also done. Uh, it took that kind of dedication uh, by the United States and FDR and ultimately Harry S. Truman to make a decision that really saved the planet, uh, you know, from overpopulation, like you said, Jim. Yes. <laughs> well, Super Dave, I want to thank you for being on board. And, and I have a personal request for our next podcast. Shoot. And I hope the audience will share the same enthusiasm is that I've been, you know, I've been, you know, you're a very credible guy. Anybody who listens to these podcasts know that you bring insight, credibility, and, you know, very articulate about your point of view. And I'm dying to hear what you have to say about Bigfoot. <laughs> I, yeah, I've told you about that being a time long. I'm glad you're interested in that because there's been a lot of uh, controversy over the years. And I have some insight that I think uh, uh, will we'll put a different light on it. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear it, Super Dave. And thanks so much for for uh, for being you know being the the linchpin on the Super Dave and Jim show. And I want to thank the audience for listening to us. Have a good day, everybody. See you, Jim. <laughs>